So, there we go. So, I have the privilege of preaching this evening, and I also had the privilege of choosing a different text than the one that is next in Revelation. So, I'm actually going to say, ha, and we're actually going to the last chapter of Revelation. (laughs) I don't have one specific text we're looking at. To be frank with you, tonight's sermon is really more of just a devotional thought for you, thoughts to hang our hats on and, and just think about the Christmas season and how we should be processing it as believers. <clears throat> I'm going to start by reading chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read um, the first five verses, and then we'll kind of springboard from there. Revelation 22, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall see him and serve him, excuse me. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Shall we pray? Lord, this is what we long for. This is the day we cannot wait to see. We long for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We long to see your glory on display. But ultimately, I just can't wait till there's no more sin, till there's no more sorrow, or in the words of this scripture, till there's no more curse. And now we cannot see your face. But according to this text, Lord, you tell us one day we will see your face. Our faith will become sight. This is what we long for. And it is all because Jesus Christ came to earth to rescue rebels. So, Lord, please encourage our hearts tonight with these truths and help me to speak only that which is in accordance with your word. For I ask it, In Jesus Christ's name, amen. There is this obsession in mankind in looking for a utopia. We're looking for a utopia. We want the perfect world. You can read any kind of science fiction book. You can read any book, frankly, that has some kind of utopian features to it. It's like we're obsessed with it. And if you think about that, think about just plots in general of stories. Every plot, there is just this general rise, right? And there's conflict that happens over the course of the story. And at some point, there's this great climactic point where the, the plot is at, reaches its greatest point. The conflict is so intense and so great. And then there's this resolution. And if I could just use this vernacular, there's hopefully, according to the plot, a happily ever after. That's what we are so focused on. Most stories are that way. And when an author doesn't do that, 
it kind of throws us off because we're not expecting that. We're expecting a happy ending. I mean, frankly, this is something I never thought I'd ever admit, frankly, from a pulpit even. But I actually don't mind watching Hallmark Christmas movies. And here's why. The reason is because the plot is always the same. I get that. And there's always snowing at the end. I get that too. But I also like the fact that it ends happy. There's a happy ending. There's a resolution. So many movies today don't have happy endings. It's almost like they create this dystopian world and it doesn't end the way you want it to or expect it to. And you just, you just feel so unfulfilled. But so many times you read uh, certain books and that's the plot line. The plot line is that there's a happy ending. And Christmas Hallmark movies, there's a happy ending and it's snowing at the end and there's Christmas trees and decorating. It's great. It's fantastic. The reason why that's so attractive, though, is why I bring it up. Why do we want this utopia that we look for? Why do we yearn to have a happy ending in every story? Why do we want the movie to have the bad guy get his comeuppance and the good guys rewarded? Why do we want that? Why is it so natural for us to want that? I think the answer is found in this book. The reason why we want that is because that is exactly the way God has written the storyline of Scripture. It is the story of a perfect world corrupted by the fall and of how God brought about in his providence and wisdom event after event and climax after climax until it got to the climactic point at the cross and continued on to a climactic point in the future that has yet to come. But one day, there will be a happy ending because God has written his story to be so. So I was thinking about this in light of the Christmas season. Because a lot of times in the Christmas season, you'll hear people talk about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, taken from Luke 2. And we want everybody to have this happy feeling during the Christmas season. And frequently, we do. We have these, these, this, this sense of peace and happiness. Seeing decorations like this inside this room, gathering as your family to, to celebrate Christmas together or to decorate the tree or decorate your house. There's just something wonderful about it. But why is that so wonderful for us? As Christians, why does that have any meaning whatsoever to us? This is my point in our sermon today. It's because of the past work of Jesus that gives us our future hope. It is the past work of Jesus that gives us our future hope. And for the next few moments, I'd like to just draw your attention around a few things that tell us the story of the Bible and that tell us why Christmas is such a wonderful story to remember and a story that we need to continue to proclaim because it's not just the Christmas season that we should be talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It should be in every aspect of our preaching and teaching of the gospel because it is foundational to the hope that we have of the future. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts that hopefully will will surround and serve as a, as a structure for us to put our, our thoughts around. And the first thought I have is that we need to realize the fall of man. You have to begin there. There is a problem. The world is not a utopia. This is not a happy place. There is sorrow. There is sadness. There is sin. 
None of us would question that in this room, I would hope. We know that this is the case. And if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you say, well, hey, Genesis chapter 1 kind of starts out happy, doesn't it? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? That is the way it was supposed to be. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us that mankind fell. We know, of course, the story. I won't read the entire text, but the serpent beguiles Eve, and she eats the fruit of the forbidden tree. She gives to her husband, who also eats. And then the Lord God is looking for them. In Genesis 3, verse 7, we read that after they had eaten of the forbidden fruit, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What happened to the utopia? This was supposed to be the perfect world. This was supposed to be the way God intended his creation to be, in perfect harmony and fellowship with him. Why are they sowing fig leaves? Why are they all of a sudden hiding themselves? Verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they should have run to him with joy. But the very next phrase says, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They should have ran to creator God with joy and love, but instead they hide themselves. And the Lord God called to Adam in verse 9 and said to him, Where art thou? Did the omniscient God not know where Adam and Eve was? Was this a cosmic game of hide-and-seek that Adam was playing with Creator God? This was a very pointed question. The Lord knows exactly where Adam is in every sense. And when he says to them, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and not I ran to you with joy. I ran to you with hope. I ran to you with love. No, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. I feared. Where once they should have enjoyed the presence of God, now to them it is something so fearful. That's not the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be something of joy, of peace of comfort. They knew they were naked and they hid themselves from the presence of God. The Lord says to them, Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat. And of course you know they commence to give every excuse where it's somebody else's fault. It's not my own fault. But ultimately, here is what we read that the Lord does. He says in verse 14 unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. Above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. But, verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. 
rather than immediately incinerating these rebels, God in mercy permits them to live. And not only lets them live for a while longer, he promises to rescue them. The utopia that he had created, if you will, would one day come back. But it wasn't going to be possible through their doing. They were irreparably damaged in the sense that they could do nothing in and of themselves to redeem themselves. They could no longer not fear God. They could no longer desire his presence. From now on, Adam and Eve would fear the presence of God. So much so that when God, in verse 22, says to them, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. The idea is that he drove them out. It's not like he was this, this butler saying, Let me usher you out, please. He is driving them from his presence. This is an act of judgment upon men who had rebelled against him. He drove man out and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Adam and Eve had they obeyed God, would have enjoyed eternal life. But now that they have sinned, not only will they die, they may not enjoy the tree of life. They have been driven from the presence of God and from the presence of the tree of life. The rest of the story of the Bible in the Old Testament leading all the way to the New Testament is a story of the spiral of mankind into degradation and to further sin and depravity. And none of us enjoy reading the book of Judges. I don't know of a single person who's like, wow, that's like my favorite book to read in devotions. But it is also the story of hope. Because the Lord does not leave rebel mankind to die in their sins. In mercy, he continues through his providential outworkings and through the providence of his will and wise ways to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to Adam and to Eve in sending a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. To the point that after 400 years of silence, where God was not speaking to Israel through prophets, one day, there is a young girl who is met with a startling view. And this startling view is recorded in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. It says in verse 26, and in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God. 400 years of silence. Nothing. Not a sound. A lot of bloodshed. A lot of sorrow. A lot of judgment. 
But now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. This shows us our second thought, if you will, the beginning of the plan of God. The fall of man was recorded in the Old Testament, and we see how it further, further spiraled into sin and degradation. But in the New Testament, we begin to see the unfolding of the plan of God. So that an angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. She's espoused to a man named Joseph, which means that she was probably in this arranged marriage. She is not yet legally married to him, but she is legally betrothed, which is almost like a marriage. But they're not yet married. He's going to prepare a place for her, and when he's ready for her, he will come again unto her and bring her to himself, that where he is, there she may be also. The angel comes to her and says, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Here is an angel sent from the presence of God. The presence of God that mankind is no longer permitted to be in. Whenever you see an angel or a messenger from God who stands in the throne room of God and is in the presence of God coming and interacting with humanity, what is almost almost universally, the response. It's not a casual, oh, hey, bud. It's fear. It's trepidation. Why? Because all the way back in Genesis 3, what was Adam's fear? His response, I should say, when God's presence is coming towards him, he hides himself because he says, I was afraid of you. Here is an angel sent from the presence of God. And what is the response of Mary? She fears. So that the standard reply in almost every single interaction with an angelic creature sent from the presence of God, the the standard reply is in verse 30. The angel said to her, Fear not, Mary. Really? That's easier said than done. I guarantee you, I guarantee you with 100% certainty, if you were to see the angel Gabriel or an angel sent from the presence of God, you would be terrified. You'd be terrified. Why? Because even though we love the Lord, even though we have Christ residing within us still, there is a sense of the glory of God, the refulgent glory of God that terrifies sinful humanity. Mary is no different. So this angel Gabriel has to remind her, don't fear. Do not fear. Why? For thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. But Mary continues to wonder. And she said to the angel, how shall this be? 
seeing I, I know not a man. It's not like she wasn't cognitively, cognitively aware of any man. She was not married. She was not going to, because she was an honorable woman, she was not going to be able to have a child the way God has designed that to work. So she says, how's that going to happen? How am I going to have a child? I'm not married. And here is the response of the angel. The angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Mary embraces what she knows will become a symbol of shame. Because who would believe her? They said, Mary, you're not married yet. You and Joseph haven't been together. How are you with child? Have you been unfaithful? Have you been cheating on Joseph? And her reply is, no. I know it's been 400 years since we have heard the word of the Lord, but I am telling you, I saw a messenger from the very presence of God who told me that I will miraculously conceive a child. It wouldn't be through the agency of normal biological outworking. It would be through the agency and power of God's Holy Spirit. Every person would be saying, wow, I've heard a lot of excuses, but that is a first. Joseph was one of those people. In the book of Matthew, chapter 1, he is an honorable man. He has been away from his beloved, from his betrothed, seeking to prepare a place for her. And it says in verse 18 of Matthew 1, when as his mother, Mary, was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, before they were married, before it was biologically possible for a child to be conceived, she is found with child. But the scripture writer has the divine viewpoint and says, of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, however does not have that perspective yet. Being a just man, he was a righteous man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. This is Joseph saying, my wife has clearly been unfaithful to me. I don't care what excuse she gives. This has never happened in the history of humanity. This has never happened. But I don't want to drag her in front of the public square I don't want her to be disgraced in front of everybody. I have the legal right to bring her before the rulers of our city and say, this woman has been unfaithful to me. She is clearly with child, and I assure you, I am not the father. She must be put to death. He could have done that. He had the right to. 
But it says, while he was thinking of these things, because he had decided in his mind, maybe I should just divorce her. That's what was required in order for for him to annul their betrothal. Literally, it was a legal proceeding he would have to go through. While he thought on these things, verse 20, behold, again, after 400 years of silence, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, notice this, fear not. Joseph's dreaming. He's dreaming. Even in his dream, he's fearing at the presence of this angel. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. This is the plan of God unfolding. Mankind had rebelled against God. Mankind spiraled further into their sin, and yet what does God in mercy and grace do but say, I will reach down to them, and I will rescue them. I will save them. This is the plan of God. So when Joseph awakens in verse 24, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not. He did not have any kind of relations with her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, Joseph, in obedience to the word of God, called the child's name Jesus. Well, I won't go through the rest of the Christmas story. You know how the angelic hosts appear before the shepherds. And as the song that we sang this evening says, they bowed before the lamb. And how there were these magi. We don't know how many there were or even technically where they were from other than that it was from the east who recognized that there is a king born to the Jews and they come to worship him as well. All of these pointings demonstrate who this little child was. In the moment, I don't think Joseph and Mary, even though God told them through his messengers that he will be great, he'll rule on the throne of his father David forever. You're going to name him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I don't think Joseph and Mary entirely got it. Even though we have the wonderful Magnificat recorded in Luke chapter 1, where Mary is praising God, her Savior. She doesn't entirely know what that's going to look like, but she knows this. The word of the Lord is true, and she believes it. And she knows that this child that has been miraculously wrought within her womb is a child of great significance. And of course, we know what this child does. At the age of 12, he's schooling the Pharisees. At the age of 30, he begins his public ministry where he turns water into wine. And throughout the course of the next three years, how this child wrought within the womb of Mary makes lame men walk, makes the deaf to hear, makes the blind to see, and makes the dead to live. This is what this child did. He did everything that only God can do. This child clearly is the Son of God. 
But the ultimate climax of the story of Scripture is this, that this perfect child, this perfect child born to Mary, wrought miraculously within her womb by the agency of the Holy Spirit, was unjustly accused, was lied about, was maligned, was condemned, was beaten and tortured physically, was in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, If possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This child would grow up to be the Savior of the world with arms outstretched on a Roman cross, being crucified shamefully on display to all the world. Where once his creatures hid themselves in shame, they sowed fig leaves for themselves to hide their nakedness. The Son of God is stripped naked and hung on a cross to be shamed for all the world to see. And he would breathe his last. Scripture is very careful to tell us that he didn't lose his life. He gave it up and was in the grave for three days. But on the third day, He rose from the dead so that there were so many women who went to the tomb to see his body, to anoint his body with with spices and ointment, and he's not there, and they fear again. Why? Because there's angels there. God sends messengers again, and they're terrified. And even Jesus himself, when he appears to the disciples in the upper room as they're hiding themselves, the windows are closed, the doors are locked, there's no way for anyone to get in. Jesus miraculously appears. It doesn't say he walked through the walls. It just says he's there. They're terrified as they see the risen Lord, and they're not even entirely certain that it's him. Are we all hallucinating? And he says, take your hands. Feel the nail imprints. Thomas. Take your hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. John would end his gospel by saying, these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have what? Life in his name. All the way back in Genesis 3, God drives man from the tree of life where they're no longer permitted in his presence. But John records his gospel that I wrote this book so that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, guess what you get? Life. The life you cannot have on your own. The life that can be only appropriated by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. So that throughout the rest of the next 2,000 years of church history, God's people would be doing the third thing that I have for you. The third thought is that they would be proclaiming the hope of the gospel. The fall of man was the horridness of this story plot. The plan of God is his unfolding throughout scripture, but the hope of the gospel is what we're supposed to proclaim. Because where once we didn't have access to life, now we can have life. 
through the name of Jesus. So that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, the assurance is that they will be saved. And those people who proclaim that gospel do so because they have a wonderful future hope. Without this message of the gospel, without the storyline of this miraculous book, this infallible book, we're hopeless. We don't stand a chance. We have nothing to offer a God. We are completely and morally bankrupt. We can offer nothing to God save, as in the parable Jesus gave of the tax collector and the Pharisee, but to simply throw ourselves at the mercy of God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the wonderful hope is that he will because of what Jesus did. So that those who believe and have life have this hope, then as we finish. They one day will enjoy a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is a description of where God dwells. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruit and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's the tree of life in the presence of God. And where will there be finally the resolution to our story? Verse 3, there will be no more curse. There's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more sorrow. There's not going to be any more pain. But what will there be? There will be the throne of God, and the Lamb shall be in it. And what will his servants do? But they will serve him forever. We'll get to be in the presence of God again because of what Christ did. And this is the phrase that I just want to encourage your hearts with as we close. Verse 4. They shall see his face. Genesis 3, mankind was driven from the presence of God no longer to see him. Moses asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, Moses, you can't see my glory. My glory would incinerate you. But I'll show you a portion of it. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they see their master all of a sudden transform so that even still in a veiled form, he is radiating the glory of God. And they fall flat on their faces in fear, but they still can't quite see the fullness of it. And scripture also records for us that no man has seen God at any time. And the idea is they haven't seen him fully to the fullest degree of who he is and his beauty and excellencies. But the last chapter of the book, the end of the story, what do we get to see? We get to see his face. We get to join the spirits of righteous men made perfect who even now are standing before the throne of God and are hearing these angelic Creatures crying back an antiphonal response, holy, 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 holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
They see the lamb. They're in the presence of the lamb. And they cry out, worthy. This is what I can't wait for. This is what I hope you can't wait for. And this is why the Christmas story is important. Because without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, without the enfleshment, if you will, the fact that the second person of the Godhead takes on human form, without that happening, where's our hope? Without Jesus Christ growing up and having a public ministry and dying for our sins and rising again, where's our hope? We would, in the words of Paul, would be of all men most miserable. There is no hope. The rest of Genesis 3 would be in effect. There would be a curse. We would be living in a sin-cursed life with sinful people, with sorrow and sadness and pain and grief. And we die in our sins and stand before the bar of God where he would condemn us, and rightly so, to an eternal fire of his wrath without Jesus being born. But he lets us with the blood of Christ, once again, be in his presence and have access to the tree of life. That is the hope of the gospel. This is the story of the Bible. So that when the hymn writer put it, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Is it any wonder that a small town like Bethlehem could be such a wonderful place to write about? in a hymn, because all of our hopes are found in that small town, because that's where Christ is. And one day we, we shall see his face and be in the presence of the one we have maligned, the one who is shamed for us, the one whom we get to call our Lord, our Savior, and the one we long to see. So I echo with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. We long to see you, Lord. We long to see your face. We long to know that this is not all there is, that the storyline that we see right now of sin and sadness and sorrow is not the end. There is a joyful, happy ending, and it is only because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago of a virgin named Mary. And where once we were no longer permitted in your presence, now because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to you so that we can with boldness even come before your throne of grace even now. Lord, this Christmas season, please encourage our hearts with the end of the story where we are in your presence and there's no more curse and we will see your face. To the praise of your glory, we pray. Amen.